You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Hi. Well, welcome you here. My name is Cordell, one of the pastors here at the church. So glad that you are joining us here either in person or for those that are joining us online. Um, this morning we would have been starting a new series for the summer, uh, walking through the book of Romans chapter number 8. That's what we're going to be doing uh, starting next Sunday, but in light of uh, some of the things that have been going on in our nation, we felt it was prudent to take some time to stop and to pause and, uh, and to address that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me from Re- to Revelation chapter number 5, and we're going to be uh, reading out of verses 1 through 10. There should be a pewback Bible either under your seat or one of the seatbacks in front of you. You can use one of those. We'll also have the scripture on the screen. Revelation chapter number 5. Uh, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 10. And once you get there, if you are able uh, and you don't have children that you're wrangling, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter number 5, starting in verse 1, and it begins like this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw my angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me this morning. Father, I I confess to you, without your help in a moment like this, we don't know where to look. God, as there are evidences of strife and malice, division, Injustice, hatred. We look to you as our anchor, Lord Jesus, because you have faced down all of these things and you have defeated them on the cross. We need you now, Holy Spirit, to illuminate our hearts. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Convict us where we need it, comfort us where we need it, challenge us where we need it. And give us clarity, Lord, in a really foggy time. We humble ourselves under your word. We submit to it gladly. 
because your word is life and truth, because it leads us to you. So we long for you, God. We look forward, as Brendan led us this morning, we look forward to your return. Until then, God, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week uh, has burdened my heart, as I'm sure you have all been burdened. I've prayed and considered this Sunday morning and how to talk about issues like race and malice and institutions and division uh, all week long. And I want to start by making a few preliminary remarks that I, I think are important for me to make. First, in this moment of tension uh, and hostility, it's not lost on me uh, that my being a white man talking about these issues carries with it some implicit skepticism from some. And I am also reminded that I cannot and I will not guide anyone into truth apart from the grace of God because I am an imperfect and broken man with all the human frailties that sons of Adam carry within them. Number two, I am a pastor. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a politician. I'm not a cultural commentator. My first responsibility is to the Lord Jesus and then to the local expression of His church uh, that He has given me a small uh, but an authoritative voice and duty to simply speak the words that He has already graciously provided to us in Scripture. And even though I'm aware that my words are going to be online uh, and therefore inevitably more people are going to listen to what I'm going to say today, I have written this sermon with Providence Community Church in mind. And my singular focus this morning is to shepherd the flock of God that is among us here and those that are members online joining us. And so because that's my singular focus, I want to talk about some built-in assumptions that I have on this sermon uh, before we jump in. Because we're talking to the church this morning, I... My first assumption is on the basis of Genesis 126, Isaiah 43, and many other texts, that as Christians who are image bearers designed to display the glory of God at the ends of the earth, that as Christians we plead, we desire to please God first and foremost in and through our sacrificial lives as acts of spiritual worship. That's our primary concern. My second assumption is that the truth that God has provided to us in Holy Scripture is our primary means of knowing and understanding and interacting with God, and that it directs us in all of the questions of life, uh, and that we make it our aim to submit to the Word wholeheartedly. Texts like 2 Timothy 3.16 come to mind. Thirdly, the Christian, therefore, must take his or her cues from the Word of God and reject the notion that culture will be an infallible indicator of truth. Although common grace allows for the world to ascertain some truth, the best that we can expect from the culture and world around us is approximate truth, and therefore approximate justice, apart from God's intervening grace. This is what the Bible tells us. And then fourth, and last here in this section, is that with a Christian understanding of sin and its pervasiveness, we all ought to be skeptical even of our own selves because apart from the help of the Spirit and the direction of God's Word, our hearts are prone to deception and self-justification when we are confronted with the truth of God. Texts like 1 Corinthians 4 come to mind where Paul says, I know not of any accusation against me, but that does not therefore equip me because God alone is the judge. Or Jeremiah 17, 
9 through 10, it says, The heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Who can find it out? We are just as prone to self-justification, and so we ought to be skeptical of our best efforts. So, with these things in mind, I have three major focuses this morning to answer three major questions. The first is, what is going on in our nation right now? The second is, why is it happening from a biblical perspective? And third, how ought we respond as the church? I'll read those again, and then we'll jump in. What's going on in our nation right now? Why is it happening from a biblical perspective, and how should we respond? So, first, what is going on? And I'll start with just a factual assessment. I don't think anything I'm going to say, especially here at the front end, you have not already heard, but I do think that it's important that we state it. Factually, what's going on is a black man in his mid-40s named George Floyd was arrested for buying cigarettes with a fake $20 bill. And while being placed under arrest, a white officer named Derek Chauvin, alongside three other officers, used extreme force to restrain George by pressing his knee into the back of his neck. And while George pled for him to alleviate the hold and cried out that he could not breathe, and onlookers asked and pleaded for the officer to stop. The officer showed indifference and carelessness by allowing George to be rendered unconscious and later pronounced dead due to asphyxiation. After the release of this video online, protests were sparked nationwide, demanding justice for George Floyd and his family while calling for more sweeping change in police forces, policing policy, and more. And these peaceful protests turned quickly into violent looting and rioting, sparking controversy over the protests and creating national division from the common neighborhood all the way to the White House. I think it goes without saying, but we ought to say that we should lament and mourn George's death and every death that is like it for its purposes and why they happen. But of course, as you know, every story is not just facts, but also every story frames itself within context as well, and that helps to frame exactly what the story is and why there's a response to it. So I think it's important that we talk about the different contexts that we find the story in. First and foremost, this story happens in the historical context of a nation, the United States of America, that's haunted by slavery, lynchings, Jim Crow laws, segregation, civil rights violations, redlining, individual and corporate instances of racist, racism and sin that have been perpetuated for years. Of course, it's in the global context, it's hard to even think about that we're in the midst of a global worldwide pandemic where hardship, suffering, death, and international tensions are at an all-time high. A national context that is very divided politically in an election year with social media more prominent than ever in human history. A cultural context where we have the American culture writ large that is made up of a number of American subcultures that just see and experience life much differently than one another. And then, of course, and this is where my focus will be, and we'll not spend a lot of time on the rest of these because I am not responsible or, or even a good voice to be speaking on them. The spiritual context is what I want to focus on. The spiritual context is living in a society and a culture where spiritual deception that causes pride and idolatry, the mother and father of all sins, has been allowed to masquerade as virtuous and to be celebrated, I think it's important that we define racism here because if we don't, then we might all have a different understanding. Racism is an explicit or implicit feeling, belief, or practice that values one race over other races, 
or devalues one race beneath others. And of course, this comes as a result of sin and all of the context I just mentioned. And so the result is what? We have chaos, we have division, we have malice, we have violence. And then, of course, we should go on to say that the spiritual context is summed up by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-5, through 5, when he tells us about what's coming for us in black days. Paul says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul says, avoid such people. This is the spiritual context through which George Floyd was murdered, killed, or manslaughtered, depending upon what will happen with the courts. I say this in the spiritual context of our current moment specifically so that I'm not confused for saying something that I am not. The words of Paul were coming true before our eyes long before the conflict we're experiencing today. And we shouldn't fall prey to being prisoners of the moment because this dark spiritual context I have laid out proved to be a very significant soil for the moment that we're now in to grow. And this spiritual context actually supersedes the racial divide. And so this is the moment that we are in with all of its ugliness. And it brings me to the second question, which is, why is this happening from a biblical perspective? How do we make sense of it? I want to be just in way of reminder, I am speaking as a pastor. I am not a politician, I am not a sociologist, I am not a statistician, and that's good for all of us. I'm not any of those things. Um, I speak specifically under the principle lined out by Peter in his letter to the exiles and by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Peter and Paul both being not white men, not black men, but Jewish men writing to these people. And Peter says this, Let judgment begin in the household of God. Well, Paul says, What business do I have in judging outsiders? God judges outsiders, but it is those inside the church that we are to judge. So this idea of judging is not uh, condoning those who would presumptuously give a verdict eternally um, on others in a way that only God can give, but instead this is challenging the church to be a place that uses the word of God as a means of righteous judgment. Questions like, how do we know what is right and wrong? How do we make sense of the issues at hand? What are the reasons behind the things that are happening? So my words come from a pastoral heart for the church and the ways in which the church ought to reckon with the things at hand and how perhaps we have played a part and what we ought to do in light of that. My words are not coming as a critique uh, on culture as much as they are a focus on the church. And so in light of that, I'll start with my assessment scripturally as to what is happening. Number one, when the church deprioritizes the central truths of God's word, Christians are inevitably forced to borrow from culture the reasons, explanations, and weapons that will never defeat the greatest foe that we have ever contended with and the one that we contend with today. You see, the gospel is the only thing that can diagnose the reasons for racism and undermine the heart and mind of racism and empower the Christian to combat racism with love. It's the only answer. There is nothing else that offers 
this explanation. And yet the church, who is called to prioritize and hold high and hold as central the gospel, has deprioritized the essential truths and gotten distracted. A quote from Richard Baxter, and, and forgive me, this quote is going to be like old English. It's a few hundred years old. I just couldn't find one that was better. Um, I'll, I'll try to give commentary at the end, but he's talking about how do we know what is true and what is error. And here's what Richard Baxter says a few hundred years ago. I thought it was helpful for us. He says, well, he's talking to pastors. We should begin at the most evident, certain, and necessary truths, and then proceed orderly to the knowledge of the less by the help of these. As you climb by the body of the tree, or its trunk, unto its branches. If you begin at those truths, which, you spring, which spring out of the greater common truths, and know not the premises, while you plead for the conclusion, you will abuse your reason, and you'll lose the truth and your labor for both. For there is no way to the branches but by ascending the trunk of the tree. When the principles are well laid, they'll be your help to all your following knowledge. Focus in on this. But one error here, here being essential truths, will introduce an abundance of errors. A thousand other points of natural philosophy you may safely be ignorant of, but if you do not know what man is, who God is, and the following transactions between the two, you will be laid open to innumerable errors. So I contend that when the church deprioritizes these fundamental truths, she also abandons all of the reasons, explanations, and weapons that have been given to us by God to combat something as abhorrent and evil as racism. Why? Because it's the very gospel itself that gives us those things. For instance, Christians believe that the gospel starts with a perfect, glorious, most important being in the entire universe, God, who is all satisfied with himself and is entirely other from us. That this God is who we are accountable to. This God is who created us. And it, the Bible starts with God because the gospel starts with God. And then the Bible, of course, carries on in Genesis 1.26 and says that you and I are created in the image of this God. And that means every single one of us, of all kinds, of all races, is created in the image of God. The Bible, in the Gospel, elevates our human dignity alongside one another, with no big eyes and little U's, but in the image of God being created. And then it also, the Bible tells us, that we're not only made in the image of God, but to display the glory of God. And that our lives are meant to be aimed for His glory. And then, of course, we have the gospel, which then teaches us that sin entered into human history in the garden itself. Sin not just being a problem, being the problem. Sin not just being a side story, it being woven throughout from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, the thing that must be eradicated. Sin being both the defamation of God's glory and the destruction of man. Sin being the reason for all injustice, and listen to me, that it, uh, sin offends God. And if we stopped there, the Bible ended there, then of course, justice would lead us to wrath abiding on all humanity forever and ever. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible tells us that then we have Christ. That where we were all once in Adam, now, by faith, we can all be bound in Christ and be clothed with Christ forever. And that we get not justice because Christ absorbed the justice of the Father on the cross, but we get grace. And that that grace is extended once again to all tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations forever. Or until we stand before the Lord Jesus. 
You see, when the church abandons the basic truths of Scripture, she then will borrow less capable weapons to fight. We also will abandon the diagnostic tool that tells us why these things are happening. We'll begin fighting politically or socially and not spiritually and relationally. We'll wrongly think that we can have any reconciliation or peace horizontally if we have not first repented vertically to the God of the universe whom we have offended greatly by our racism and degradation of other image bearers of God. We think that somehow if we just say sorry horizontally that that's going to fix the problem as though the first offense was not vertical in its offense to God that we would treat another image bearer beneath the station that God created them in. You see, it's just a backwards view. And it's our biblical negligence or ignorance that has rendered us impotent as we show up to spiritual gunfights with pillows and we wonder why nothing changes. The church has an answer. The answer is the gospel. Number two, when the church identifies racial injustice as a sin against man alone or as merely a social issue, but does not define it as a sin against God, a gospel issue, and a worship issue, then she will inevitably trivialize, marginalize, and stigmatize, or overemphasize racism. That was a big point. I'll read it again. When the church identifies racial injustice as a sin against only man, and maybe just merely a social issue, and not a sin against God and a gospel and worship issue, she will inevitably trivialize, marginalize, stigmatize, or overemphasize Racism. How do we do that? Well, just walking through those a few times, we trivialize racism when we treat the real difficulties of, for instance, the African-American community with little brother syndrome. Like when your little brother, who's younger than you, cries over something that is not that big of a deal, oh, we'll just get over it and say things like, well, the civil rights movement never happened, just get over it. It's not a big deal. This is, we're over this. And so we trivialize something that's deep and at the core of our worship. If we are treating, by the, on the basis of race, someone beneath their station, not as an image bearer of God, it is not merely social, it is not merely sending its man, it's not to be trivialized, it's to be addressed. Or we might marginalize it. We might set these issues off to the side as tertiary. Well, we'll get to that when we get to it, but let's get back to the main things. Or maybe we'll stigmatize it. Like, that's an off-the-table discussion. That is uncouth. We don't talk about that because it makes us feel awkward. It makes us feel odd. Or lastly, then we can also overemphasize it by saying that racism is the only sin that exists or should matter. And I want to mention in parentheses I put here that this happens often because the first three happen so much. When an issue gets trivialized, marginalized, and stigmatized over and over, then naturally, the natural response would be to overemphasize it, especially for the voices of those who feel unheard. Number three, when the church loses her exiled identity as pilgrim and sojourner, she begins to grasp for cultural or institutional acceptance and approval, rather than finding her singular contentment in the approval and acceptance of God in Christ. When the church loses her exiled identity as pilgrims and sojourners, she will begin to grasp for cultural or institutional acceptance and approval, rather than finding her singular contentment and the approval and acceptance of God in Christ. When we forget as the church that this is not our home, and we are not primarily promised to be accepted, in fact we're promised to not be accepted by culture and cultural institutions, we will inevitably fall prey 
accept us. You see, the, the church of the living God is meant to be the primary identity as clothed in Christ, the family of God, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's who we are, first and foremost. When we see one another, we see brother or sister clothed in Christ. This is the identity we want to embrace collectively together. And that a part of that identity also means that we will naturally be pilgrims and sojourners in a world around us. But instead what happens is when we reject this identity, naturally we want to go to cultural institutions, tribes, trying to find a way that we can be accepted. Because here's the thing, and I think we can all admit this, being approved and being accepted feels good. So this happens with those who look at a, for our nation, a primarily white society, that is cultural institutions that have been built up over the years, and therefore it's easier to go along and to get along so that you can be accepted by that institution and turn a blinded eye to something like racism, because being accepted feels better. It also manifests itself in our nation today that there's a there's strong cultural waves and movements that we would love to be a part of, and therefore we feel the need because we don't find contentment in our station. You see, the Bible doesn't encourage the church to find tribes culturally to join, but instead, Hebrews 13, verses 13 to 15, calls us outside the camp where Christ is and embrace His reproach where He is alone. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where Peter calls us elect exiles and sojourners in a world that does not know us because it did not know Christ. You see, if we are not willing to accept and embrace not our own, we will inevitably be glory hungry enough to just say or do whatever needs to be said or done to protect ourselves or satisfy our comforts. Approval and acceptance are difficult things to turn down, but in the battle for the kingdom of God, they must be laid down. The church's prophetic voice is at stake if we are unwilling to be in the world but not of the world. This, of course, means that we must live a life of holiness and humility over and against a life of comfort and approval. Finally, the question is, what should we do then? What should we do, Christians? What is our response? A couple reminders here. Number one, we are human beings, and we are not like the God-man Jesus Christ. We desire to be like Him in certain ways, but we also embrace the areas that we are not like Him. One of those is that we are not omnipotent. We do not have all the power to face everything. We are not omniscient in that we know everything. And we are not omnipresent in that we can be everywhere. This should give us some hope, not just discourage us. It should give us hope that we are not expected by Jesus to be Him. He does a great job being on His throne. Secondarily, Jesus gives us grace and not justice. This is good news because if you and I got what we deserve, where would we be? In light of that, here are a few action steps that we can take together um, in our sphere of influence, not overextending, but not neglecting our God-given responsibility either. Number one, Reflect and repent of sin together. Reflect and repent of sin together. Ask ourselves the questions. Where have we fallen short, both collectively and individually? And have we sought the face of God in repentance for our sin and folly? Jesus is our advocate. That's what the scripture says. He welcomes us back. But here's the thing. We mustn't presume that because we have some generalized feeling of guilt in these areas that God has now forgiven us. No. Relationships are built on trust. Trust is continually built through grace, forgiveness, and true repentance. And so we ought to reflect and ask ourselves, where, where should we fall before the throne?
Jesus can ask God to forgive us. Number two, recognize and expose the spiritual works of darkness by A, pursuing holiness, and B, speaking the truth in love in your spirit and blood. So there's two ways here that I think. The first is living a life like salt and light of scriptural cause. Secondarily, speaking up and speaking the truth in love where God has placed us in a sphere of influence. Now, I cannot biblically commend the idea that to be silent at times is to be complicit as the social media age has convinced us. Certainly, we should not be silent if we are met with racism. Or whether that be our everyday experience or something that we recognize, we should be bold and courageous to speak up. But to say that faithfulness to justice is only validated by online activism is not just untrue, it's unhelpful. Because at times, online activism gives us the feeling of being just, when in reality we are only signaling that we're just. Or signaling that we are a part of a just movement. Instead, Jesus calls us to be faithful to Him, the embodiment of justice and grace, by being receptive to the Spirit's lead and committing ourselves to both living and speaking as He leads. I want you to consider the life of Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Now this simultaneously made Jesus the controversial figure that he was, but also the world-changing King and Savior with three billion followers over the face of the earth. Now what was the controversy over that statement? Well, Jesus did things like walked into cities and decided that he wasn't going to heal anyone. Which seems unjust if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was the embodiment of justice. Or later on, Paul the Apostle would walk into the city of Macedonia, and the Spirit would tell him, do not go to this town, but go on to another town. Which seems odd, because aren't there lost people that need the gospel? Certainly, but we also have a king who knows more than we know. So our call is not to discern or decide every single unjust issue and then litigate it online, but instead to rely upon the Spirit to lead and speak as He would have us speak. Number three, commit to discipleship. This may seem harsh. I pray that you hear it as an encouragement and a, and a necessary challenge. Do not settle for a nominal and service level Christianity. Our nation is not in need of more superficial, biblically illiterate Christians who don't have a desire to follow Christ day to day, but are totally content with Sunday morning Jesus life. We just don't need more of it. It's actually causing more problems. Because when you dilute that which is meant to be pure and powerful, Jesus said it like this, If salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be trampled. And if you have not seen the trampling of the kingdom of God and the truth of the gospel in our culture, I would encourage you to just open your eyes a little bit more. And the reason, more than any other reason, is because of nominalism, which masquerades as Christianity, and it's not. We can't be about that. So this morning, my encouragement would be that we would commit ourselves all over again to discipleship. And here's some practical ways. Read your Bible. Pray. Grow in your understanding of God and in your relationship with God. Don't settle for being told everything that you ought to believe by even me. But read the Word of God. There's a story in the book of Acts where there's a group called the Bereans. And the Bereans were these people that Paul came to, to evangelize. And as he began to evangelize them, he opened them the scripture. It says the Bereans opened their Bibles and began to check, fact check with the word what Paul was saying. 
And Paul, rather than being offended, said, Thank God there's people like you. That you're not just taking what I'm saying at face value, but you're diving in for yourself so that there's solidity to your faith and you'll know that what I'm saying is testified in the Scriptures. Jesus was crucified because a group of people didn't do that and found him to be a heretic. So we ought to commit ourselves to discipleship. And I don't just use the idea of reading your Bible as though that's an end in and of itself. Here's what I'm saying. If we knew our word, friends, we'd have answers. And they would be readily on our lips because the word has given us these answers. The gospel is true. And the gospel is beautiful. And the gospel is the only hope. And if we knew it like we knew the back of our hand, if we knew it like we knew sports center stats, if we knew it like we knew half the things that are going on on Facebook, if we knew it as much as we knew all of our other interests, it would be as though it were default when someone talks to you about the issue of racism, you would immediately bring, this is the reason for racism. This is the reason for injustice. Christ brings us hope. And then lastly, number four, engage in related humility and love. My friend and fellow pastor, most of you guys know his name, Brian Lee. We've been in partnership with Higher Expectations Church for years now. We were talking about this this morning. Don't engage in strained and disingenuous attempts to hotwire interracial friendships tomorrow. You guys know what I'm talking about? Don't engage with that. Don't now all of a sudden say, oh my gosh, I looked at my friends list, it's not colorful enough. I need to now try to pretend as though I have a lot more friends that are of different races than they are. This is not only disingenuous, it undercuts the very core of what Christian friendship should look like. We have the playbook, but I want to read to you from Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Listen to how Paul starts with relationship. Let love be genuine. Do you know what's disingenuine? A big cultural storm that then makes you want to now choose your friend list on the base. It is, it is racism in reverse form. No. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Listen to the playbook of Paul relationally. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll be burning coals on his head. Listen to verse 21. Over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the playbook of the gospel community that starts here and makes its way outward. That is what made the early church so powerful, so potent in the midst of Roman occupation and Roman injustice, is that the church lived this out and then began to go outside of that community into the other communities and extend the love that only the gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to. There's no other way. And I said,
say all of these things, even though I am 18 inches higher than you, not 18 inches higher than you functionally, but I submit myself to them as a man who has previously fallen short. And so this morning I want to end where we began, in Revelation chapter number 5. You see, Revelation chapter number 5 is an interesting text. It is a, it's a vision. The disciple John has been exiled to an island all on his own. Think castaway, but with Jewish man alone. He's out there in the middle of nowhere, and God gives him a vision of many things. And the revelation is a snapshot of multiple visions that he has seen about the future. This particular vision is a vision about the future in the end, but not a vision of what happens on the earth, although that happens in Revelation. It's a vision of what happens in the heavens. And John sees the throne room of God, and he sees the 24 elders with angels, and they cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll with its set of seals? Now this scroll represents the final scroll that will be opened to lead us to the end, to lead us to restoration. It will lead us to consummation. It will lead us into eternal life. So this scroll has to be opened. And yet, what happens is a major letdown in the heavens. It says that they looked at not on the earth, not under the earth, not above the earth, and no one was worthy to open the scroll. And so John did what we should do a lot more often when we consider our plight without Jesus weep. We should weep for a world that is so broken without Christ, and this is why we have the brokenness, evil, abhorrent, disgraceful things like the events we've seen in the past. We should weep. But we also shouldn't weep without hope because then one of the angels touches John's shoulder and says, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. I want you to get this picture. Lion, power, strength, stamina, authority. Authority, especially in light of our reason that authority and power and strength to conquer. How does Jesus conquer? Well, I love the way that John articulates it. He says that as he opens up his bleary eyes with tears, he sees a lamb standing as though slain. Jesus is the only king who used his power, his strength, his authority, his lion-like nature that only he has the authority to bear. And he wielded it by laying it down and dying for us. This is the way of the church. This is our way. Our king showed us he told us we are not like the Gentiles and that we exert power and authority over others, but we lay our lives down. Why? Because Christ has been slain. And this is no small thing, because what's the new song they sing? Because of the land that was slain. Because you might be saying, Court, if I, if I don't exert my voice, if I don't exert my authority, if I don't, if I don't exert my power, then I'm just going to get run over. Perhaps that's what, that's what happened with Christ. But here's the promise. The promise is there's a reward. What's the reward of Christ? Well, the new song they sing is, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What kind of people? What kind of people? Just Jewish people? Just white people? Just black people? No, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what has he done for us? He has made us all, not individually, not segregated, made us a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Only Jesus has torn down, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, the wall of hostility, not just between us and God, but between us and God. 
And we're in the already not yet as we look at a watching world who's waiting and groaning for the redemption of the sons of God. But we get to live in the reality of the kingdom now. That Jesus ransomed for himself one people, not a bunch of bloodlines, one new bloodline. The blood of Jesus Christ. John Piper says it like this in his book entitled Bloodlines. He says, the bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodline of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring all the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. That's the church. That's us. And so I want to end with this thought. How can we do those four things that I just mentioned? Why do we do them, you know? Reflect and repent of sin or recognize and expose spiritual works of darkness, commit ourselves to discipleship, engage and, re- and relate in humility and love, and probably a myriad of other things that I could have said. We do those things because He is worthy of them. And we respond with a life of worship. I want to end with this. Racism, when I say it's not merely a social issue, I'm not saying it's not a social issue. I'm saying it's so much more. It's at least that, but way more than that. Racism is a worship issue. That's it. We have a lamb who's been slain and he's worthy of our worship. And when we reject to worship the only one that's ever worthy, we will inevitably degrade every race, will inevitably degrade any other race. Listen to this. If you're willing to offend and rebel against the God of the universe, what keeps you from offending and rebelling against each other? Nothing. We're all, we've already decided we're prideful enough to hate God. You better believe that we'll hate each other on a whim. But when the grace of God turns our hearts to worship, and the grace of God washes over us, and that the only one who was righteous and worthy to condemn us, rather than getting in our face and punishing us, was punished so that He might live in our hearts changes from the inside out. This morning as we partake in communion, I want you to be reminded that it's what unifies us. We do it together for a reason. It unifies us because it reminds us of the blood that was shed. The blood that made one bloodline said, shed by our Savior and King, Jesus. And as you partake, I want you to join with me in praying this prayer that Jesus taught us. Jesus, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you'll stand your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I'm humbled and grateful for those under the sound of my voice. I love them dearly. And we collectively admit that we are imperfect. We have fallen short of your glory. And that this is no small thing, it's a great thing. Forgive us. Wash us clean. Thank you that your word tells us there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you now do the miracle in providence that we so desperately need, God? Make us that city on a hill that shines brightly. That we would be simultaneously humbled by our sin and exalted by our new station, seated in heavenly places with you, Jesus. Righteous in your sight, holy in your sight, all because of grace.
And now as we sing together with one voice, let that which supersedes what divides us, namely our identity as being clothed in you, let that unify us in a way, Holy Spirit, that nothing else can. And give us the wisdom, discernment, and courage to live lives that glorify your name. We love and trust you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.